Yeah, I think that band encapsulates so much of what I adore about this this genre at large now, which is a sense of humor that kind of belies this multi-directional frustration and rage at class and at culture and at just a larger population in some ways taking the easy way out and ignoring the misshapes. I mean, I just, I really love the attitude and sort of the, the sneaky insurrection of Britpop. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. I'm excited for our episode today. We are going to be delving into a topic that uh, well, it meant a lot to me in the mid-90s when I was in high school going into college, and that is Britpop. And the reason we're talking about Britpop is last month, Pitchfork did a list of the top 50 Britpop albums of all time. And uh, they were kind enough to invite me to participate in the list, so I voted, and then I wrote some blurbs for the big list. And I thought the list turned out great. By and large, I think the rankings made a lot of sense. You know, there were things that I didn't agree with, but it was a very well-written package, and it looked great. And uh, it was put together by the associate features editor over there. Uh, her name is Stacy Anderson, and she's going to be my guest today. We're going to be talking about this list and be talking about like what Britpop is and the significance of it. Um, you know, for me, um, Britpop, of course, began with Oasis. And you know, if you read my book, your favorite band is Killing Me. You know, you know, in the first chapter of that book. You know, that, that book, by the way, it's about pop music rivalries. And in the first chapter of that book, I talk about the first pop music rivalry, or one of the first that meant a lot to me, and that was Oasis versus Blur. And I was team Oasis all the way. And I was on board with Oasis pretty much from the beginning, from the beginning of them breaking in America, which was 1994. And 1994 is, also, is sort of identified as like the big breakout year for Britpop because you had the first Oasis record definitely maybe you had Park Life by Blur which was a breakthrough record for them you had His and Hers which was a breakthrough record for Pulp um, so and those are of course three of the big Britpop bands there's also the band Suede uh, they came out in 93 with their self-titled record Suede was not really as big in America as the other three, and certainly Oasis was, was much bigger than anybody. Pulp and Blur were, were basically cult bands, but Oasis actually became like a bona fide pop band in America where they had huge songs on MTV, they had hit songs on the radio, really in a way that those other bands didn't. I guess with Blur, their really only kind of big song in America was Song 2, the, like, the woo-hoo song that you hear at baseball stadiums to this day. And that song didn't really become big until 1997, which was really sort of towards the, the tail end of Britpop. So Britpop was this movement, it happens in the mid-90s, British bands that sort of rise up in the wake of Kurt Cobain's suicide, um, which creates a void in rock music. I mean, you, you still had big alternative bands happening at that time you know we just had a huge series on Pearl Jam so you know what they were doing at that time but you know sort of the focal point of that scene you know there was a hole now and it really opened up a space for this group of bands to come in with a much different perspective you know like whereas grunge bands and alternative rock bands here in America had sort of like a pessimistic cynicism to them and sort of an anti-stardom stance. The British bands were very much about live life in the moment and embrace 
the possibilities of life, including the possibilities of, of stardom, of, of fame and fortune. Um, certainly Oasis was very audacious about wanting to be famous and wanting to be huge. And for me, that was a big thing that attracted me to them. Um, not only did they have great songs, but they had this attitude that um, I associated with the bands of the past, you know, the British invasion bands of the 60s, you know, bands that I had only read about, that I didn't experience firsthand. You know, the rock bands that I was accustomed to were sort of stare-at-the-floor type bands, you know, bands that resisted um, their own charisma in a way. And here was Oasis embracing that, you know, and saying, no, we are the best, and we're going to prove that we're the best by writing these deathless anthems uh, that are huge enough to fill stadiums, even though we're just a club band at this point. Um, that's what attracted me to Oasis, and it's what led me down the path to listening to other, other British bands at that time. Uh, bands that had a similar attitude, a similar swagger, a similar sort of lightness about them. Um, that was, I think, very indicative of that time. I mean, this was pre-9-11 America. This was the Clinton era. This was an era of... Uh, it was Clinton here and Tony Blair, of course, in England. I mean, this was an era of relative peace and prosperity. Um, and Britpop was a reflection of that, uh, while also sort of subtly critiquing the sort of you know the, the class differences that existed in, in, in England. You know, I mean, that was a real thing of Britpop too. But for me, again, as an American who didn't understand any of that, it was really about the spirit of Britpop that was an attraction. So when I was asked to participate in this list for Pitchfork, it was a real fun experience to revisit a lot of these records. You know, because aside from Oasis, I, I, I hadn't really listened to a lot of this, a lot of this music in a long time, um, and it was a surprising process because some of it I liked a lot still, and some of it didn't age well at all. <laughs> so I don't know. That was a fun thing to find out and to explore, and it's something that Stacy and I talk about in this conversation. Um, if you saw the Pitchfork list. I'm sure that you had some issues with it. You know, there's always issues that people have with lists with this. You know, some of the big questions deal with Radiohead. Radiohead, uh, their second record, The Benz, was ranked at number three on the Britpop list. Um, and there's a lot of, I think, discussion about whether Radiohead is a Britpop band. And we get into that in this podcast. Also, the band The Verve, one of my favorite bands of this era, uh, to come from England. Um, I wrote about the verb on this list, and yet I'm still not quite sure if they should be considered a Britpop band. Uh, they don't really seem to fit. <laughs> uh, so that's something I talked about, Stacy. With I, I talked about that with Stacy as well. So you know, we talked about Britpop. We talked about the big Britpop bands. We talked about sort of the questionable Britpop bands, like I just mentioned, Radiohead and the Verve. And we also talked about some of our favorite sort of unsung Britpop bands. So if this is an era that you remember, that you uh, were a fan of at the time, I think you'll, it'll be fun to revisit this stuff. If you're someone who wasn't alive at the time or you never listened to British music in the 90s, um, hopefully this will be a, a good way to be introduced to new bands. So uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Stacy. So Stacy, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, I wanted to have you on, you know, Pitchfork, you guys did this big Britpop package last month. I thought it turned out great. I was honored to be a part of it. I wrote a couple of blurbs for the list. Um, it seems like people responded pretty well to the list. I mean, was there a lot of like arguing about the list? Did people, I mean, I, I, cause you know, I have my own qualms with it and we'll get into it as we, you know, talk on the podcast here, but did mm -hmm. people, were people pretty happy with how things shook out on that list? I would say they were happy within reason. And then, by the way, thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm excited to talk with you. Uh, yeah, I think that the feedback I saw from from the online hive mind was about 50% appreciative and 25% complaining about the Radiohead inclusion. Maybe another 15% arguing about the shampoo inclusion, and then just general rabble rabbling about you know Blur versus Oasis and all that. So I'd say we got about half people to. To enjoy it on some level. No, I think I think it was a good turnout. It's something that, you know, a lot of people have a lot of nostalgic fondness for. There's people who are just coming into it who 
know of the big, like the big top five bands, but they aren't really aware of Ash's contribution to the scene or Hefner or the Laws. So it was really fun to kind of serve as both um, a primer for this, I think, somewhat misunderstood genre, and also just to be the, the funnel through which a lot of rage was good for one day. <laughs> and of course, I mean, when you make a list, you know that there are going to be people who don't like it, and that's kind of part of the fun of this sort of thing, and it, it inspires conversation and uh, you know, sometimes death threats if people are really upset. You don't want that sort of thing, of course. But um, before I, look, I... I look forward to that. That will mean I will have done something interesting with my job. <laughs> before we talk about the actual list here, I'm just curious about like where you come at it uh, with, with Britpop. You know, because I mean, I know that you were spearheading the list and you did some interviews. You talked to Danny Boyle. You talked to Jarvis Cocker around this time. So I'm guessing that you. Um, we're a pretty big Britpop fan. Like, first of all, like, how old are you? I'm 32. You're 32. Okay, so I'm 39. So, so you were, I mean, like when Oasis broke, I was around 16 or 17. And that was sort of my introduction to Britpop. So you would have been maybe around 11 or 12 or so. Like, what mm-hmm. was what was your experience? I guess listening to this music in the 90s. I mean, were you a big fan then, or did you come to it later? I can freely admit that I wasn't really tuned into Britpop the first time around. Um, what I heard was what made it all the way from, you know, London to suburban Northern California in the <laughs> in the early 90s. Um, yeah, I would say it's something that came to me through a lot of musical curiosity from other scenes and other genres. Um, at the risk of sounding like a complete ingrate, when I was at Coachella in 20. 20- I want to say 2012, and Pulp played, it wasn't the reason I was on that field, but I was sure excited to see them. And I mean, even just saying that is almost blasphemous to people who loved Britpop the first time around. I think I've just been lucky enough to come to it and to come to a lot of these bands independently through loving other kinds of music. Like I I really liked Manchester music for a while, and I think that came to me during my college radio days. And so from that, I came to you know, like Black Grape and that sort of thing. But there was never a moment growing up when Britpop was an obsession. It's actually something that came to me by proxy of a lot of other obsessions. Was there a gateway band for you in terms of, like, either Britpop or just British music of the 90s? I would say, yeah, within the past, like, say, five years, when I really started loving uh, Britpop, I would say that the gateway band was definitely Pulp. And I don't, I don't understand having been, you know, blissfully on the blood war the first time around. I don't know why Blur versus Oasis didn't automatically yield the answer pulp. <laughs> so um, I, I adore everything about them. It was definitely not the worst day at work when I got to interview Jarvis Cocker for a related story. And then, of course, also Fulton into the Britpop list. Um, yeah, I think that band encapsulates so much of what I adore about this this genre at large now, which is, a sense of humor that kind of belies this multi-directional uh, frustration and rage at class and at culture and at just a larger population in some ways taking the easy way out and ignoring the misshapes. I mean, I just, I really love the attitude and sort of the, the sneaky insurrection of Britpop. I think it's a sort of cultural movement that we could stand to have a, a few more of in its wake. Right. I, and Britpop is definitely closely associated to Jarvis Cocker's attitude to me. Right. Well, you know, and you've kind of opened the door to this. I think it's important that we sort of define what Britpop is. And I think this is what leads to disagreements on this list. I mean, you mentioned the Radiohead thing, for instance. And mm-hmm. I want to get to that, too, because that's, that's one thing I want to talk to you about. But, like, in, in terms of just trying to define what this music is, like, how... Like, how do you define it, and how do you think it was defined on this list? I mean, is it just a matter of being a British band, you know, in the 90s, you know, that was singing, like, in a pronounced British accent? I mean, was that the only criteria, or, like, what makes a band Britpop? I mean, yeah, I guess it doesn't hurt to sound like you just got pulled off the streets of Sheffield, but it's not <laughs> definitely the only thing. Um, and that's something that, yeah, we... We knew, and as I was writing the intro, I took pains to have to pretty much spell out that lots of people have lots of different interpretations of Britpop. There were critics from the U.S. and the U.K. and Canada who were contributing and voting in this, and everyone had a different idea of what Britpop is. But I would say what 
it came down to, and in the, the larger umbrella of this list, is that it's a very um, guitar-focused anthem music that takes cues from the rock of 1960s England. There's elements of glam rock. It takes the, the ebbing moments of Manchester and Outlook, and it has a lot of um, interest in the, the daily cultural experience in Britain. And I do think that, as we also said, geography does play a factor. So I'm, I'm sorry if you were coming up in 1990s Georgia and you tried to be Britpop, but you're not on this list. <laughs> right, right. The Olivia well, Tremor Control is very sad right now, but I'm sorry they're not on this list. But there were sort of non-British bands on the list. I mean, it wasn't Teenage Fan Club on the list, and like uh, it's Teenage Fan Clubs from from Scotland. And there's some Irish mm-hmm. groups on the list too, right? I mean, like why sure. why were they kind of put into that Britpop uh, umbrella? Yeah, and fair point. I think that we did include uh, the United Kingdom, and that also did in this case extend to like Northern Ireland and Scotland. And I do understand that that's a somewhat controversial mindset but we did kind of treat it as the larger the larger kingdom in that in that sense i think that when it came down to it it was really more about the feeling of what it was like being in that general part of the world at the time i mean they're they're thinking about things that are fairly universal i mean in the larger great britain experience i mean there's bands singing about certain streets and certain you know class divisions and certain experiences on the night bus and i think it it's it's like anything where you have to make a judgment call, but just by proxy of what they had similarly more than dissimilarly, bands like Teenage Fan Club and Catatonia still counted. Right. And Catatonia from Wales, so, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, in everything you just said about the uh, sort of sonic attributes of, of Britpop sound mm-hmm. right on to me. I, I would also say that just for me personally at the time, you know, being a like a young rock fan that became like a big Anglophile in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. One of the big attractions to me of British bands at that time was sort of the life affirming aspects of, of the music that there was, it was in the lyrics. It was also sort of in the sound of like a lot of those records. There was a sort of joie de vivre in a lot of the execution of a lot of those records. Absolutely. There was a big emphasis on fun. And in the context of the times, that was a pretty big change of pace. I mean, because I was a total grunge kid. I loved Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all of those Seattle bands. And, um, you know, in 1994, you know, Kurt Cobain commits suicide in the spring. Mm -hmm. And in my memory, I don't know exactly what the date was, but I feel like in the fall was the, was when I got definitely maybe the first Oasis Mm -hmm. record. And the first song on that record is rock and roll star. And mm-hmm. that was so antithetical to the politics of alt-rock, this proud sort of proclamation that I want to be rich, I want to be famous, you know, and I want to go out and, and drink and, like, shag birds and all that sort of stuff that Oasis Absolutely. talked about. That was so – that I responded so strongly to that because it was such a contrast to what had been going on before. So, like, for me, as an American Britpop fan, that was, like, a big – deal like that that was that was the thing you mentioned the spirit like Mm -hmm. that was always like the spirit i guess that in my mind i I was associated with Britpop, even if bands weren't necessarily strictly from england or Mm -hmm. maybe were a little bit different in other ways like that unifying spirit was always the kind of common thread right quite a sensibility of that uh that culture especially particularly english to to look up at the the gray sky and put your face in the soul and just find a reason to make a cheeky joke, you know? Right. Um, I, yeah, I have to say on a personal level, I, I'm not a huge fan of the word Anglophile just because it has been directed at me. And certainly <laughs> in my personal life, um, Jarvis Cocker has been indirectly responsible for a lot of my bad life decisions. But How so? Like, that, like, like as far as uh, like the lyrics guiding you in a certain way? Oh, just generally the, the template of Jarvis Cocker has, has, Led me down many a bad dating path. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've spent a lot of time in England, and maybe that that forgives the sins of not having been paying attention the first time around during Britpop. I don't know, but I, I do love London. Have spent a lot of time there. But it's interesting you mentioned grunge because while certainly not the same approach in in attitude and rock, um, while the dissimilarities are more pronounced than the similarities, they are related because. Uh, a few weeks after the death of Kurt Cobain was when Parklife was released. And Parklife is 
an enormous record in Britpop. It really was the catalyst in a lot of ways for the the weirdo outliers like like Pulp and like I don't know the, the ones who weren't as on the the sluice to mainstream like Elastica and that happens a few weeks after the death of Kurt Cobain and in some ways Britpop kind of helped move the center of you know credible rock from America to England. I think that's one reason we still kind of deify it now is because it really was the definition of rock and roll for for several years universally. Yeah, and I would say too that with the Britpop bands, you know, and, and this is true of British rock in general, like throughout history, but there was less of a sort of adherence to sort of like the strict guitar-based drums. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to write riffs. You know, that sort of like traditionalism of American rock bands, like with the British mm-hmm. bands, you know, there was. Uh, more freedom with like theatricality and also utilizing like dance music and pop music, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, certainly that was the case with, with Blur and uh, and Pulp. I think it's interesting that Oasis was much more bigger in America than those bands. I think in large part because they were a more traditional rock band that they did just do the riffs and they had the attitude and they didn't, and, mm-hmm. you know, certainly Noel Gallagher. He had that song with the Chemical Brothers, the song Setting Sun. So he dabbled in sort of the club culture of that time. But like for the most mm-hmm. part, Oasis was a meat and potatoes rock band. In a way, so was Radiohead, I think. Mm-hmm. More of like a straightforward rock band than like certainly the blurs and pulps of the world. I mean, does that make sense at all in terms of like how these things translate? Sure. And I, I would love to interject that I really liked what you wrote about definitely maybe on this list, by the way. I thought you captured the the attitude and the sort of like just gleeful uh what am i thinking of just sort of um the prescient pride of being the biggest jerks in the world but you know <laughs> being validated for it hourly that oasis were and would much more become on the next record that you did a great job with that well and i have to say too that i felt like you or pitchfork was were personally trolling me by putting the self-titled blur record right before the oasis record <laughs> Before definitely maybe I was like okay, this is like a little jab, you know. Because again, for you know, uh, I am well known as a huge Oasis fan. Uh, they were a hugely important band mm-hmm. to me. I, you know, I wrote a book where I talked about. I read hating... the book. I know it's. I know it can't. The side you came down on in this debate. Yeah. yeah, I know you. Just for just for listeners who maybe are not totally uh, aware of the context here, I'm like I'm sort of like out as like a blur hater. So like. Um, yeah, you know, this is path for sure. Yeah, this and this is sort of a good transition to talk about the list because, you know, at you know, definitely maybe like as you said, I wrote the the blurb for definitely maybe that came in at number nine on mm-hmm. the Pitchfork list. That was number one on my list, and I'm gonna say my top three albums on my ballot were all Oasis records. That was mm-hmm. definitely maybe at number one. What's a story, Morning Glory? Number two. And the Master Plan, which was the B-Sides collection at number mm-hmm. three, because I think Oasis, one of the greatest B-Sides bands of all time. And I know there were, I don't think the Master Plan actually made the Pitchfork list, although like Suede's B-Sides album did, I think. Suede did, and Blurs did, uh, and Oasis did not. You were, you were in Fighting an uphill battle with that one. The, the boulder was yours alone in that case. I don't yeah, think I, it, actually. I got I to gotta say to my fellow voters... You blew that one. You got to put the master plan on there for sure. But anyway, let's get to the top five here. Number one was Different Class by Pulp. And I think I even said this to you in an email. I, I, I knew that was going to be number one on this list. It's, it's sort of like when you make a list of 90s hip-hop records, Illmatic is always number one. It's mm-hmm. like I knew Different Class would be number one. Number one, I mean, first of all, it's a great record. Mm-hmm. So it deserves to be up there. It's also... And you kind of hit on this before. It's very emblematic of what Britpop is. Um, like if you just wanted to hear one Britpop record to kind of understand what was going on at that time, different class in terms of its sound and also just the themes on that record um, mm-hmm. kind of encapsulates like Jarv- that. Yeah, like Travis Cocker himself, there's no fat anywhere on that record. It is a <laughs> wonderful tight record. <laughs> is it contrarian? Oh, I, I wish I'd... I oh. wish I'd thrown that line at him when we interviewed him. Uh, <laughs> is it contrarian, though, to to say that maybe his and hers is a little bit better in terms of pulp you know, records? Uh, I didn't hang any chads on this one. The Pitchfork uh, voter base 
overwhelmingly voted different class number one, and it was my number one. But I will say as someone who personally wrote the his and hers entry that that was my number two. And I absolutely wonderfully love his and hers. I think that there is no song in the Western world greater than babies. Oh, man. I was listening to his and hers on the drive to the studio and the double shot of babies and she's a lady. Mm-hmm. Bam. Spectacular. That, yeah. You know, and you, you mentioned the whole like Oasis versus blur thing. And the answer is pulp. You know, like I gotta say that at the time in the nineties, I was not a huge pulp fan or not mm-hmm. as big as I am now. Like I, I liked different class. I liked this is hardcore. Um, I like this is hardcore a lot. I've always really liked that record, um, especially the, the first track is so good. The fear is that called? I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome song. Here comes the fear again. Yeah. Here comes the fear again. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's but, not the title, but yeah, it's a delightful line. But uh, they've really, I would say that they are now my second favorite Brit pop band. Mm-hmm. Um, this, but what, what changed for you? Well, I I think it's just living with these records. I you know it. Well, before we get to that, let's just go through the rest of the top five here. Uh, sure. Cause... We could talk about different class more. I will talk about pulp all day and the <laughs> encapsulations of, of sex and class and how to make both tawdry and grandiose in a way only this record did. But yeah, let's, let's keep talking. We'll keep talking I would love here. to defend Blur. So, yeah. I just want to get down but... the list. So yeah, number two, we have Park Life by Blur. And you kind yeah. of talked about sort of when that came out and the significance of that. Number three, it's The Benz by Radiohead. Mm-hmm. Number four, it's... What's a story, Morning Glory by Oasis, which we all know should have been uh, number two on this list, and we all do. That's <laughs> right. We just established that. <laughs> With def- definitely maybe at number one. What's a story, Morning Glory at number two? That should have been the real list, but you know that's okay. We'll forgive. Different class can be number forty or so. Yeah. <laughs> no, different Very class. Beautiful. A different class. I think on my list uh, was number five, and I did. I did joke in you know the we could fulfill the the manner in which everyone believes pitchfork operates and just put different class somewhere like 45 just to enrage everyone fully well you know yeah that that would have enraged people i think it would have surprised people because again i think that is sort of like the default pick like when they when they do brit pop lists in uh you know 2038 uh, or 2037 mm-hmm. or whatever you know different class is going to be number one just like sergeant pepper is always going to be number one on the Rolling Stone list of the greatest albums of all time, or if you make the best rap albums list, it's going to be Illmatic. Mm-hmm. I think Different Class is pretty firmly ensconced up there. Um, yeah, the only reason it wouldn't be, I honestly believe, and as the voters also overwhelmingly showed, the only reason Different Class wouldn't be number one is if we decided to throw a wrench in and just be contrarian for the sake of it, and that's just so irresponsible and inherently unromantic itself. Well, I mean, you know, were there choices were there albums that did better than you expected or albums that didn't do as well as you expected you know i was expecting i would say within the top 15 or 20 so pretty much what happened um there was quite a debate on how much manic street preachers were going to be included and i didn't think more i did think more of their records would make it so it's a big surprise to me that let's see was everything must go the only one that was included yet so um I suppose, for the most part, it was a pretty good blend of what was popular and what was a little more insular to the scene. Um, just knowing our readership, I thought the Laws would do better. I thought Hefner would do better. And those kind of ranked lower than expected. Yeah. Corner Shop got a bit higher than I thought. Uh, I was thrilled that Shampoo got a bit higher than it did, but I was pushing quite hard for them. So. And let's talk about Shampoo. Shampoo is like, mm-hmm. you know, would it be fair to call them like a precursor to the Spice Girls? Well, actually, they, they were. I think it's pretty well documented that they were an influence on what eventually came out of that that boardroom in the in the five horse women of Spice Girls. And I love the Spice Girls, but they're not Britpop with it. That was actually a discussion itself. Some people who shall remain nameless did vote for the Spice Girls in the Britpop poll, and I wrapped them on the hand, and I said, nope, not on my watch. Spice Girls are not Britpop. <laughs> but um, we're seeing, yeah, sort of a packaged product, not least because they were young girls. There was an element of sexism to it, but they were an entirely you know, self-contained band. They formed after meeting in school and working on a Manic Street Preacher's zine together, and there was nothing manufactured about them. The slightly brad tone of their voice and how they're singing about being late to a party and their 
their one hit song Trouble. I mean, it, it might have struck some, you know, listeners of Britpop who were expecting a more macho, the champagne swinging mindset at the time to call them packaged, but they weren't. And I like that record a lot, actually. I think there's actually some really good kind of, it, it, it's like a great bubblegum rock record. There's some real kind of swaggering kind of hooks on there, almost like Gary Glitter type stuff, you know? I really, oh, yeah. um, kind of along the same lines, I thought that more people, because both of these bands were on my list, mm-hmm. I thought more people would support menswear and Gay Dad, because these are sort of the mm. two punchline bands of Britpop. You know, like if you want to make a joke about Britpop being dated or something, you make reference to Gay Dad or menswear. Mm-hmm. And first of all, menswear, that record, I don't even know if that's like on Spotify. I, I, I actually ordered a used copy of the CD on Amazon so I could get it, because mm-hmm. I, I was watching clips on YouTube. They're sort of like the Bush or live of like Britpop, like it's funny because Brit because Bush is a British band that became a grunge band, but mm-hmm. uh, so it's weird to say that they were like the the British Bush, but in a way that's that's <laughs> true. But like they were just this totally trashy, derivative kind of, um, you know, no credibility rock band. But if you listen to that record, mm-hmm. it's like super catchy, mm-hmm. um, and like I really enjoy that record as a sort of like a great trashy mid-90s alt-rock record. I thought more people would get behind that just because those bands are so disreputable that I thought it would be mm-hmm. irresistible to more critics to defend them and get them on this list, but it, it didn't happen. I think all those critics got distracted by the the bright shininess of placebo for that one vote, I'm sorry <laughs> to say. And I was surprised, yeah. actually, now that you mentioned it, was surprised to see that they made the list. I, I do love, was it every... You, Every Me, that one song, but yeah. generally, I was a little surprised that they made the list. Well, okay. It's I mean, fun. Nothing wrong with it. I mean, this is a good segue to talk about the controversial choices on this list. I mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah, come at me. I'm ready. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the blurbs I wrote was about A Northern Soul, the mm-hmm. uh, second Verve album. And the Verve um, are a band I love. Um, you know, I was saying before that Pulp is my second favorite Britpop band, I I probably like the Verve a little bit more than Pulp, but like the Verve status as a Britpop band is controversial even now, even after I've written a blurb saying that they're a Britpop band on a Pitchfork list. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, first of all, they don't sound anything like the other Britpop bands. Um, they don't really carry themselves like any uh, uh, like any of the any of the other Britpop bands. I mean it. I kind of wanted to write this in my blur, but I didn't have enough space. But like, I, I think of the Verve as almost like the British version of Jane's Addiction, where mm-hmm. like Jane's Addiction was like this basically an arena rock band in like alternative rock clothing, and they didn't really fit in alternative rock. They weren't really a grunge band, even though they influenced grunge bands. And I feel mm-hmm. like the Verve kind of had the same thing, where they had they were kind of lumped into Britpop and they influenced Britpop. Like, there's you know Oasis dedicated a song. To Richard Ashcroft mm-hmm. on the second Oasis record, Cast No Shadow, because it's basically a Verve ripoff. Um, but, you know, they were this sort of like shoegazer, psychedelic, and then they became this kind of grandiose orchestral, like ballad type band. Um, but, you know, I still put Urban Hymns at number four on my own list, but mm-hmm. I don't know. They still don't totally feel spiritually like they should be grouped into this okay. uh, thing. Like, what do you I think? Like, like, do you think? Yeah. Like, what, like, what's the case you would make for the Verve being a Britpop band? Sure. Well, I would definitely agree that they have shoegazer elements. Um, the record was a Storm in Heaven. We included that on our best shoegaze albums list. So they absolutely excel at kind of creating these moody, roiling moments that you can get lost in. Um, well, Urban Hymns being at our number ten. I mean, obviously, feel, and I personally felt very strongly that they were Britpop. I just think that. There's there's an attitude in there that it has an extremely straight link to the the sort of like absurd pomposity of Britpop at the time. I think uh, <laughs> Verve and Richard Ashcroft are far less tongue in cheek than the rest of Britpop was <laughs> at the time. He he believes entirely in his own Jesus. I think throughout this record, um, 
I miss the fact that it has orchestral samples and he's going off with these ridiculous open mic phrases that he makes sound intense and spiritual at the moment could definitely raise some hackles on whether or not they're Britpop. But I listen to the the pop sensibility of it. I listen to just the succinctness of what they're doing relative to their other records. And I do think that as much in the case as Radiohead, like if this was the first or second record by a different band, by a different name, you wouldn't hesitate to think that it was Britpop. I mean, it just has so many melodic structural elements as Britpop folded in with other genres like, like shoegaze and with a bit of like chamber even, but the, the Venn diagram intersects enough at the center to be Britpop. Yeah. It's the I, name that gets people tripped up, I think, more than anything. Well, and you mentioned Radiohead there just a minute ago. So let's talk about Radiohead. You know, the mm-hmm. Benz is at number three on this list. I don't think the Benz is a Britpop record. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, and uh, it's hard for me to say why they're not. <laughs> it's just something mm-hmm. that I feel, um, like at the time I didn't lump them in with the Britpop bands. And even now, like when I listen to Radiohead, they just don't seem anything like these other bands aside from just being from England. Um, mm-hmm. So, why is the Benz? This is a two part question. Like, why is the Benz a Britpop record? And if that is a Britpop record, then why isn't OK Computer a Britpop record? Because mm-hmm. cause if we're going to put Radiohead in for the Benz, well, OK Computer is a better record than. The Benz, as far as I'm concerned, I know there's debate about that, but like, like if Radiohead's included, then OK Computer is the best record on this list. Like that'd be number one. That would supplant mm-hmm. the Pulp record, as far as I'm concerned. So, what is your thinking there in terms of including the Benz and not including OK Computer? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as I was saying, I think that, and not necessarily in, in your argument, I don't hear that, but in a lot of the, the pushback against Radiohead, it was the concept of oh, no, Radiohead are these art rock electronic messiahs. Like, they can't possibly be something as boorish as Britpop, but if this album was released by a different name, say the the stereo faces or something, and it was a, <laughs> a band you heard on the radio for the first time. It's a great fake got, Britpop name, by the way, the stereo faces. Yeah, that was for free. Yeah, you should chase anyone who calls themselves that, with, <laughs> which pitchforks, actually, not to make a completely obvious joke, but... When you're done chasing them with torches for calling themselves that, you would think, you know, this is a very Britpop album. It's certainly, you know, dark and, and incredibly dramatic. and But it still mines the same sort of, like, social... Um, I'm, I'm going to defer to what our writer, Jazz Monroe, wrote very well on this, the social theatricality of of the time. They're looking at, you know, the frustrations of their political climate, the, the new labor false promise that, you know, ultimately proved, um, you know, unhelpful in the larger movement that Britpop was trying to do. I mean, this record is angry and it's in the same way as a lot of other songs, sort of like multi-directionally furious at the, the outsider's lot in life in mid-90s Britain. It's also quite radio-friendly. I mean, you think about Fake Plastic Trees, and that is the most radio-friendly song of that year, I think. I mean, it really... I think it's really indicative that this band used to tour with James, and they did before they got big, because they have a lot of that pride in Outsider in a way that they can translate into very memorable little bites of melodicism. And... I don't personally hear that as much in OK Computer. I think that's a far more adventurous and a, a far better record. But uh, the Benz is so of its climate in a way that I think shows that Radiohead had fully decided or understood how to break free of their situation. You listen to OK Computer and you hear a band that has figured out how to outmaneuver the system. You don't hear that. They're just trying to be as weird as possible stuck in the same pub as the other people in Britpop. Yeah. I just think that, you know, there's a, is a dread in it that might remove this record from Britpop and other people's minds, but it's really just the, the darker, artier, weird end of Britpop in my mind. Right. That's so a br- the way that a last, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. 
I was going to say just the way that, you know, we were talking about how some bands only overlap with Britpop instead of fitting in neatly where, you know, the Venn diagram is 90% in the middle. I mean, bands like Elastica, that were also, uh, you know, pushing more, more glam and more Riot Girl and more angry, just succinct punk. Radiohead isn't entirely Britpop, but they're redefining it in a darker way that shows the possibility of, of Britpop, I think. Well, it feels extremely of its time to me. Yeah, I mean, that is a very compelling argument, and I don't agree with it at all. <laughs> just, uh, it's a super comp- no i think that's a i think that is the argument to make for that being a brit pop record for me what i would say and I'd, I'd say this is true of radiohead and the verve there's two things i think that make them not seem brit popish to me one mm-hmm. is the total lack of a sense of humor <laughs> like radiohead and the verve um you know i mean two of the most humorless bands of the 90s and i love both of those bands but like there's not a lot of uh not a lot of laughs on their records. Um, you know, there's a lot that of grandiosity and peak emotionalism, but, you know, especially compared to sort of the emblematic Britpop bands that we're talking about, you know, if you're going to play a, a pulp record or a blur record next to a Radiohead record, I mean, the Radiohead, Red, the Radiohead record would seem so glum. Like, it'd seem even more glum in comparison to those records. The other thing... There's some bloody, miserable theater kids. Yeah, well, maybe... <laughs> Um, yeah, well, OK Computer had electioneering, so maybe it, maybe Tom was saving all his humor for that. Oh, yeah, that's a hilarious song, too. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's about as funny as he gets, I think, is, ele- is electioneering, which is, like, pretty brutal. Uh, you might have almost smiled during recording that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, a little bit. Um, so that's, the, that, that's one reason, sort of the lack of humor. The other would be that I think that, you know, and you said that The Benz is a record very much of its time, and I think that's true, but I, I also think that... Uh, the Benz and those Verve records seem a little bit more timeless to me than like a lot of the Britpop records, even the great ones. Like, you know, like working on this list, like I, I really went out and I listened to a lot of Britpop records, and it was like a, it was a really fun excuse to revisit this music. And um, and like I said before, like I bought like a Menswear record, I bought Ocean mm-hmm. Color Scene records, and all that. And, um, I'm sure the clerk was very confused. Exactly. Right? It's like, wow, this has been here forever. Uh, you finally got it. Um, and I, I really found that, like, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean this in a bad way, but like a lot of Britpop records to me sound very much of their time. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that the talent, you know, sort of bench, like the bench isn't very long. Uh, you know, like I was kind of surprised that. Once you get beyond a lot of the big bands, like the the big, you know, your Oasis, Blur, um, Pulp, Suede, um, those are sort of the big four. And then you've got maybe a second tier of um, like Charlatans UK and uh, you know, maybe some other bands. But like there's there's not a ton, in my view, like great Britpop bands. And I was actually kind of feeling like, how is Pitchfork going to find 50 records worth ranking? Because I'm not sure if, the, mm-hmm. if there's like 50 like really good Britpop records. I, I think that there's more like 25 to 30, and they're made by about six or seven bands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like there's like, like Elastica, I think, is, is an example of a band that made like one great record, and then they kind of disappeared. Um, mm. But for the most I part... Actually- or like Hefner was a band that I didn't really know much about. They they made some really right, good records, right. but I don't know. Like, am I wrong? I mean, I just feel like it really is kind of dominated by those big four plus maybe a couple straggler bands after that. Am I, I wrong in that? Fair. I mean, I, I personally disagree because I happen to really like and appreciate almost every record on here. But that would get me to me believing that I think my ballot has something like sixty albums on it. So I'm. So I'm in it until the, the bitter end. But I would say I think you're right that there's um, there's a tier of Britpop bands, and that's what everyone thinks of. And those are artists who released multiple great albums. I mean, you're thinking of Pulp. I would actually say Elastica. I love their 2000 album. Um, I was actually disappointed that one didn't make the list. Um, you're thinking of like uh, Blur, Oasis. The second tier might be Supergrass. And yes, I forgot to mention Supergrass. Supergrass mm-hmm. is actually one of my favorites. Yeah, uh, I should have mentioned them. I'm really pleased with them. Yeah, but then after that, you know, and, and a couple of times, like, 
that are a little bit on the fence, like Manic Street, I think we you always got Suede in there already. You're getting down to sort of the the one hit albums of the ones that made a ripple before Britpop kind of flamed out. Like you're looking at Hefner, who had more than one album, but there was only one album that people really remember, and that's their debut, Breaking God's Heart, which did make this list. Um, you're thinking of The Laws, who released one album that was monumentally successful, and then, at least in England, and then kind of flamed out. So yeah, it would be hard to think of a scene and have these bands immediately come to mind when there were so many big personalities and big stars kind of taking up the oxygen at the upper level. But there are a lot of really great bands who released one or two more modest albums that are really insightful and fun and, and just absolutely evocative of everything we're talking about that makes Britpop great. So that was the great part of this list for me as someone who gets to focus maniacally on one genre of music for a couple weeks at a time as the, the um, general um, top of the spoon when it comes to the list, I guess, for, to put it very inarticulately. Like bands like Ash and Catonia, to talk about the first time Sleeper, who never fully got their due, I think. You know, you get to think about those in a new way and reintroduce maybe those to people who haven't heard about them in a little while. And then you realize that it really was a pretty rich scene. And there are some bands that were saying very interesting viewpoints, kind of antithetical to how we look at Britpop now, which is, you know, fun, cheeky dudes running around England. Like you have bands like Kinnicky who were quite famous at the time. And you have bands like, like Lush who were also playing with, with shoegaze and other elements and then throwing in fantastic little bits of, you know, I don't know appropriately distilled rage at the class system as well yeah well and you just mentioned a bunch of bands um that are sort of underappreciated is there like one band that you would want people to walk away with at this podcast to check out like sort of maybe an unsung brick pop band that doesn't get enough conversation mm-hmm. uh yeah i'm really pushing in as much as my meager authority would permit pushing Hefner when we were doing the voting of this. I really want people, I think, remember we had an email chain between the critics that turned violent bloody within minutes. Now, we, when we were talking as critics about, you know, here's a, one of the great things about the voting process is that, you know, I connect all the critics we're voting in this and then we get to geek out collectively and feel validated in our geekiness for the, the span of one email chain. And I was pushing, you know, I, I really love Hefner and I hope more people listen to them because they kind of came about on the the end of the curve of uh, Britpop. I think what Breaking God's Heart came out in 1998, is it? I can, I can check. Um, yeah, 1998. And this was a band that was not so known for their humor either. They actually have as much to do with the, the guitar pop of like Southern rock of the, mid 1990s like the the whole like Georgia, like uh collective scene there like they have elements of rem in them for sure but it's a bit loose but ramshackle um that they have all the outsider charisma of pulp without without playing the sort of like faux sleazy um master of ceremonies that jarvis cocker did i mean they're just outsiders who will never admitting that they are outsiders and they have some really wonderful songs about that in their debut breaking god's heart and i actually learned in the course of researching this list that they were john peel's favorite Britpop bands in that time yeah yeah and they were yeah band, they were a band that sort of slipped past me in the 90s i have to say that like i did not listen to them ever until we were on that email chain with all the mm-hmm. people who wrote for the list and hefner came up and i'm like i've never heard of hefner and i listened to them and that breaking god's heart record is actually really great so i'll I'll second that recommendation my sort of unsung british band uh, is the charlatans uk um and and they had one record i think on the pitchfork list i think it was telling stories which is their 1997 record um i would Uh actually i I voted for the record before that which is their self-titled from 1995 and charlatans uk um they're a little bit different than a lot of other a lot of these other Britpop bands, and that they were a little earthier, they were a little more sort of influenced by like the Rolling Stones, like of the '60s. There was sort of a gospel element to their sound, that sort of like sympathy for the devil, like piano sound, like mm-hmm. echoes throughout a lot of their songs, especially in this era. 
Um, in a way, they're kind of like Primal Scream. And I know that was mm-hmm. also a band that we were... Did they end up on the list? Did Scream Adelica end up on this list? Did not. We decided it was a bit out of the of the frame of what we were concentrating on, but yeah. I know that kind of came up as a potential uh, Britpop record, but like... Charlatans UK were kind of doing a similar thing that Primal Scream was doing, where Primal Scream kind of had that Stonesy rock combined with taking elements of the rave culture of that time. So Charlatans UK had that similar thing where they're doing these sort of riffy rock songs playing against dance beats. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're a really good band, and they have like actually several really good records. You know, their first record came out in '90, so they kind of predated Britpop, and then they got grandfathered in. Um, in the early 90s, uh, probably around the time of like up to her hips, around that era, 1994. Um, mm-hmm. And they continued making records after Britpop sort of fizzled, I guess in 97 or so would be sort of like when Britpop crested. Um, I would agree and, with that, yeah. So like, I don't know if they ever made a masterpiece, but they made a lot of like really good records. Um, mm-hmm. And... I actually think that they're one of the more consistent bands of Britpop, but they never, you know, they're not on the level of the big four, but they're a solid second tier Britpop band for sure. So I would say dig into the Charlatans UK discography. There are some really good records. They also had a lot of organ in their songs that kind of set them apart as well. You know, there was like a little kind of different sonic element for them. Um, And hit on organ. What's that? I think that's a pulp. I said can't hate on organ, and then I said I think that's a pulp lyric, actually. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, what I love about this list also, I, it was a chance to talk about the women of Britpop, which I think they can be seriously overlooked. Like the the women who contributed, the the differing viewpoints of the depraved um, joyousness of a lot of the male fronted bands, like a lot of bands, you know, Oasis and Blur and Pulp and God Love Them, but. We also, in that era, needed bands like like Sleeper and Elastica and Catatonia and yeah, we we needed. It, it's very easy to see Britpop as just a bunch of pretty boys running around Camden, you know, raising two fingers at the sky. But there was actually a lot of really intense and interesting social dialogue happening even among the sexes at the time. Would you say, you know, looking at this music now and kind of projecting it forward, I mean, I, you know, I had that thing earlier where, you know, again, like when I revisited these records, they seem sort of very much of their time in sort of a fun way for me because I remember the records, but like I wonder how people would hear them now, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you were 14 and you're going to listen to a Blur record or something. Is it, does it just sound 90s or does it still translate? That's something I'm curious about. But like, do you see the, these bands having any kind of contemporary influence on music now? Like, are there any echoes that you hear in other bands? That yeah, are... for sure. Um, I think that Britpop had quite a hand in bringing, you know, a sort of poppy electronic sound to sort of like lo-fi rock, if that makes sense. Like, that's yeah. one thing I love about his hers is that it's very slick, but it's also dancey. It sounds sleazy, but it's so smart. You know, that's all intentional. I think that some of the dynamics like that you can hear in rock nowadays, it's certainly not as popular to sound like Blur or Pulp, but I think, I think that they set a really good example for talking about the world around you in a sort of self-aware, tongue-in-cheek way. If I think and think of other rock bands nowadays who do it, I think it's kind of default for bands to be complaining about society now as well they should be. But I don't know. I mean, I think of bands like, like I was listening to Power Bottom the other day, a, a punk band that, you know, has a lot of interesting things to say about gender politics. And I hear some of Pulp in them. Yeah. The, 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 the clever lyricism when it comes to, you know, fobbing grenades at society's, Injustices. I think that is a very Britpop mindset, and even it's, it's universal. But I think Britpop showed how it could be done in a really fun way. Yeah. So I, I definitely see the the spirit ling, lingering, if not the close song photocopy itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would say that um, when I talk to younger bands, I do hear fairly often uh, bands name-checking Oasis, people revisiting mm-hmm. Oasis records. I think especially 
you know, there was that documentary that came out recently, Supersonic, that I think reignited interest in the band. It seems like Oasis songs have sort of stood the test of time in a way that maybe some of the other Britpop anthems have not. And, of course, that's true because Oasis is the best band of the Britpop era. So, you know, clearly that has been proven. Mm-hmm. Clearly, <laughs> clearly my opinion of that. Has been proven to be correct. I am. I am blurred. Um, I mean, like, okay. I I saw when I was doing research. I was watching like blur videos and like, you know, like Damon Albert's wearing like a newsboys outfit in like one. It's like he's. It's like he looks ridiculous. Like blur. They look so nineties. In a way, to me, blur. And again, this is my own partisanship coming up. But they have aged the worst out of those big four. They are so nineties, and those records sound so nineties. Um, and, and like not always a good way, I don't think. So mm-hmm. to me, they are very dated. And the fact that Park Life was number two, I am very upset at Pitchfork voters for doing this. You should be with ire. Because look, definitely maybe there are not eight Britpop records better than definitely maybe. I'm sorry, Britpop. I'm sorry, Pitchfork voters. I love you, but you know this is this is this is like. Your version of voting for Trump. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go there. I'm sorry, I got, I, 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 got, I got a little carried away there, but I'm just saying, <laughs> there are not eight Britpop records better than definitely, maybe. So, and I think history will prove that to be the case, but we'll see how that unfolds. But, um, come on, come on, Oasis, come on, Oasis. Oasis is a great Rorschach test, but I will say, and I have. Very little against Oasis. Everyone loves seeing boars get drunk and smash beer cans on their forehead, <laughs> which is not the second image I have of Oasis. But I, I have always been a Blur person, and I mean, we're talking about how I, at the beginning, about how I got into Blurs and Britpop itself fairly later in life. But I remember seeing the coffee and TV video and loving it for so many ways. But I think. Blur, to, to borrow one of my more favorite peep show stations, is definitely the band for Pasha Spazes, and I definitely can identify with that. I think that they're they're still on the outside in some ways that makes them relatable to a lot of people who were seeking solace in this kind of music. I mean, they're more isolationist. They, they're talking about being misanthropic, and they're observing people... You know, just walking through parks and they're feeding pigeons and that's their great social outlet of the day. You know, like, I think that that's just... Feeding pigeons? To a certain t- C- listen to yourself. There, you know, coffee and have tea. You never, have you never done that, Steve? That's a great time. <laughs> coffee and tea <laughs> versus cigarettes and alcohol? Come on. It is not a hard dichotomy to find out what side you want to... You know, I, look, Jarvis Cocker is cool. <laughs> yeah, he's um, all right. He's he's a very cool guy. Um, Liam Gallagher is cool. Damon Alburn is not cool. He's just not, he's wearing the Newsboys outfit, man. Come on. <laughs> you think he wants to be cool though? Um. Well, okay. Look, there's lots of people. Like, Damon Alburn is much cooler than I will ever be. So I'll, I'll just put that out there. But in the rock star realm, does he want to be cool? I mean. Uh, did he want to, Are you saying that the point of Blur was not to be cool in in the nineties? That they were Dame, they were above that. Damon Albarn wasn't in BDI. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> BDI has some jams. <laughs> BDI has some jams. And if I could have voted for two that for records that came out in the 2010s for Britpop, different gear still speeding would have clocked in at around number fifty. I would have snuck that one in. Along yeah, with, I along, both. I, I enjoyed both chords on that album. <laughs> That's all you need. That's all you need <laughs> when you have the voice of uh, Liam Gallagher. Um, I feel like we could go on like this for three hours, which would be fun for us, but it would maybe be torturous for our listeners. So we'll have to wrap up now and concede that Oasis is better, better than Blur. I think that's where we found that's where we ended up, right? Oh, I'm going to cry so hard <laughs> after this. <laughs> Look, and you maybe never stop. I don't know. Tune back next week to see if I'm dead. Just give me the podcast. You got the pitchfork list. You know, you you got <laughs> you you got like the the you got Park Life at number two, and you had the self titled Blur record of, above definitely maybe. So I'm gonna win this battle, but you won the war. Okay, I think I think that's that's clear. Sounds uh, like Blur actually winning the war, <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll give you the last word because I'm a good host. 
Uh, <laughs> Stacy, thank you so much. It was so fun talking with you. It was so fun talking with you. Thank you for having me on. All right, take care. All right, that was Stacy Anderson of Pitchfork. Got a little heated <laughs> there at the end, talking about Oasis and Blur. You know, I felt like I was good for most of that conversation, but I had to get some jabs in about Blur. Because I, I know Stacy's a Blur fan. You know, we talked about this over email. Um, and I just had to defend my territory as an Oasis fan. So it didn't get too nasty, though. It could, you know, who knows? I mean, Stacy and I, we could end up arguing about this some other time. But, we'll, we'll, but I will spare you that argument. You don't want to hear that. It could get too ugly. <laughs> um, guys, thanks again for listening. This was so fun, talking about Britpop. Um, and uh, we will be talking at you about new music and so much more next week. Take it easy, guys.